Tactics and Practice Podcast. Dobrodan, everyone, and welcome to the Tactics and Practice Podcast, the audio extension of the Axioma Institute for Contemporary Arts discursive program of the same name, focusing on investigative art, society, and new technologies. Each year, Tactics and Practice focuses on a specific theme. The 14th edition, held in Ljubljana in the spring of 2023, was dedicated to scale. I'm Nea Berger, and I followed the entire program, interviewing some of its protagonists for this channel's first mini-series of four episodes. In the previous episodes, I spoke with Laura Tripaldi about nanoscale cognition and material intelligence. Then I spoke with Nestor Sire and Stefan Kuhn about the idiosyncrasies of digital culture in the contemporary Cuban context. And last week with Anna Engelhardt and Mark Zinkevich about demonology tactics, open source intelligence and Russian military bases. If you missed any of these, you can easily find them on the platform you're using right now. I'm delighted to introduce the guests of the fourth and final episode, academic, author and publisher Anthony Downey, professor of visual culture in the Middle East and North Africa at Birmingham City University in the UK. Hi, Anthony. Thank you. So to start this off, in your lecture, you mentioned how colonization has largely to do with the extraction of wealth, labor and resources and neo-colonization is more involved with the extraction of data and how data is being used to train AI systems. Before moving on to talking more specifically about uh, AI in autonomous weapons and military operations and this neo-colonial context that you write about, I thought we'd start with a more general conversation about this shift to extraction or not necessarily general, but another kind of conversation, because this relates to one of the previous editions of Tactics in Practice. It was called New Extractivism, and it focused on this data extraction as well, but in the sense of what Shoshana Zubov describes as surveillance capitalism, as perfected by big tech companies such as Google. And there the extraction is more about seeking profit, with targeted ads, but of course it's also more sinister than that. It goes towards taking away the autonomy to one's future, to modifying future behavior. And yeah, this is something that I did find interesting to talk about a possible connection or just talk with you first about this general shift towards extraction in the context of capitalist operations before we connect it to your neo-colonial context. And connecting the two, in a way, I am interested in what would be a kind of blatant illustration of the connection between these tech companies that we focused on in the previous <laughs> tactics and practice and the military operations that your research is about. This is something that culminates, for example, in Project Maven, where Google helped the Pentagon build AI for drones. Well... Just to go back to the original question you were asking around extraction and the distinction between colonial forms of extraction and neo-colonial forms of extraction. And effectively, my general 
overview of this, and it is a general overview. I can go into more detail where needed. But if we consider colonization as a process of wealth extraction, then it had to affect this procedure of wealth extraction through various activities. And one of those activities, of course, is the deployment of technologies of vision or envisioning certain realities. So if you think of colonization as a process of producing reality through technologies of vision, then I think we have a direct connection between colonization and neocolonization, or at least how those technologies are being utilized. But let's just go back very briefly. Um, if you look at the history of colonization, it is largely to do with the extraction of wealth, the extraction of labor, but also the extraction of knowledge. And that knowledge base is utilized by various agencies, various factions, to produce a specific reality of, for example, the Middle East. And that reality is often presented as an ahistorical, static reality. And if you look at specific instances of that, you could look at uh, Napoleon's expedition into the Middle East, into Syria and Egypt in 1798. Uh, the outcome of that was a 28-volume series of books called Description de l'Egypte, which were published from 1809 to 1829. What these basically are, are images and texts that attempt to fix that particular area, that particular region. And in fixing that region, there is an overt colonial effort to extract not only knowledge, but the wealth of that region. And that's all to do with the technology of vision and how that is actually positioning or fixing those realities. Now, if colonization was about the extraction of wealth, I would argue that neocolonization is about the extraction of data. And neocolonization, of course, continues with the extraction of wealth, but it also extracts data. And data as a, as a form to be utilized to further fix the reality of that region, but also to train artificial intelligence systems. So if you start to think about what surveillance technologies do in the Middle East, for example, or if you think about what uh, lethal autonomous weapons attempt to do in the Middle East, they need data to do that. They need data to operate. So AI as a system for training neural networks needs data sets, training sets to train its neural networks. Those data sets are based upon, to a certain extent, digital images. Data is extracted from digital images and it's numerically rendered into neural networks for the purpose of training those systems. So you see something of a sort of um, recursive system in operation here, whereby information is being extracted from a specific region in order to train artificial intelligence systems to further surveil and indeed preempt potential threat from those particular areas. So this is how I see the relationship between colonial technologies of vision and neo-colonial technologies of vision. They're both about extraction, of course, but one is about extraction of wealth and one is about the extraction of data. Could you continue with the rest of your question, Neja, because there was quite a bit there that you asked in the first instance. Uh, thank you for explaining about this shift from, from extraction in colonial and then neo-colonial context. Yeah. The other part of my question was actually related to whether 
there has been this shift towards extraction in capitalism as illustrated by Zuboff, for example, and how it relates, if it does, to this extractivism of colonial technologies that you refer to in your work. I was mostly trying to find common ground to how tactics in practice previously talked about extractivism, but also the way it distinguishes from how we will talk about it. Or maybe I was just trying to find theoretical grounds to contextualize the shared interests of American corporations and military institutions, as I was wondering if you would also talk about Project Maven. Okay, so you, you mentioned Shazana Zuboff's work and so forth, and I, I should make a distinction here. When Zuboff looks at surveillance capitalism, that is a direct critique of, for example, Google. She looks at how our online activities are monetized, how the data associated or the metadata associated with our online activity is utilized by companies in order to generate a new model of capitalism. And that model of capitalism is based upon data surveillance. Now, arguably, yes, that has a part to play in what I'm proposing here or what I have been looking at in various lectures and papers and an upcoming book. But I want to suggest something slightly different here. So let's take Google as the example. In 2017, it transpired that Google were working very closely with the UN, US military. And this should come as no surprise. There has been a long history of commercial, privately owned companies working very closely with the US military in particular. It should equally not come as any surprise when you consider that the US military have been one of the major financiers, financial bodies behind the development of AI. And you can date this right back to research being allocated and undertaken in the 1950s and 1960s. Now, I think what happened in 2017 is a very interesting example of how potential models of data extraction operate between commercial companies and the US military. And we do know, more or less through the Project Maven, what exactly was going on at that moment in time. So the US military needed private research and private technology, privatized technology, to further its own ambitions around autonomous models of surveillance and autonomous models of threat prediction. So it called upon Google to develop through its systems a neural network that could identify certain objects, specifically objects uh, in zones of conflict. Now, what we understand from the fallout, because it soon became apparent to the employees at Google and publicly, that what Google was developing for the US military was not just about image identification. It could potentially be used to identify future targets and therefore could be used to kill future targets. So Google employees went up in arms against this. It was obviously a very contentious issue. Their technology was being utilized, their neural networks, their AI, their photo interpretation technologies, and their image classification technologies were being used in a military setting where they could be used to power a lethal autonomous weapon or an unmanned aerial vehicle. 
uh, in both instances, you have the potential for fatality, for targeting and fatality. Now, what transpires when this all breaks in 2017 is that the system that Google was using was effectively a TensorFlow API system, which is effectively, TensorFlow is a library that enables machine learning to come into effect. It trains neural networks. It's a very basic form of training neural networks, but it's a very effective form of training neural networks to identify certain objects in a landscape, for example. Now, the project was put to a halt when all of this information came out. But the project didn't stop there. It was subsequently taken up by Palantir, also a privately owned company. And Palantir is an interesting example of a company who have been actively engaging with the US military for some time now, specifically around the use of artificial intelligence in kinetic and non-kinetic theaters of war. Now, I could talk a little bit more about them, but basically, Project Maven has given us quite a dramatic insight into how these systems were operating, how the military were co-opting private technology or corporate technologies to affect AI systems in the realm of lethal autonomous weapons and unmanned aerial vehicles. Thank you, Anthony. That's actually exactly what I wanted to open when referencing this shared interest between corporations and military in the U.S., I guess I also wanted to see connections between this perspective on user platform data extraction as a new capitalist operation and the connection to neo-colonial technologies as you write about them. And when I say capitalist operations, I'm referencing uh, here mostly the politics of operation by Mazadra and Nielsen. They also believe in this shift to for, of capital to extractive operations. An operation is not just uh, as in the sense of an algorithm, big data rhetoric, but like a wider range of processes, particularly focusing on how these operations hit the ground, so how they interact with local environments, reform it. They also write about the connection between this exploitation and the production of subjects. And not sure if there are connections here with all I've said, and there's no need to reference this specifically. But anyway, this production of subjects, for example, is definitely something that you've written about as well in a neo-colonial context, of course. And at this point, I would like to ask you to explain the meaning behind what you call the colonial technologies of vision. So what they are, how have they evolved? What is their role in construction of aerial surveillance? And then as these visions form the basis for apparatuses that you talk about that do, in a sense, hit the ground, how do they produce subjectivity? How do they produce subjects or reproduce a colonial vision of, of the Middle East? One, one statement has always stuck with me for quite some time now, and that comes from M.A. Cesar who in Discourse on Colonialism, it's about four or five pages where he talks about the impact of colonization, how it produces subjectivities. And it's a fascinating account of what colonization does to individuals. Now, of course, colonization is a process of dehumanization. It attempts to dehumanize. And again, if you think about the discursive impact of that, if you dehumanize someone, You take away not just their humanity, but you give yourself the rationale and you give yourself the excuse to exploit them. And Cesar says something quite succinct. 
and I'm quoting, he says colonization equals thingification. So what he's addressing there is how subjects are produced as objects through colonization. Now, Cesar's critique, as befits his time, he's writing in the 1950s and 1960s, he's very drawn to an economic analysis of this, the way in which economic exploitation produces individuals as objects. So this is the colonial process. This is the desubjectification of the individual. Now, arguably, what happens under a regime, a neo-colonial regime of artificial intelligence, is that neo-colonization equals datification. And let me just break that down for you briefly. Um, neo-colonization as a process datifies, produces individuals as sources of data. Now, again, this is a subjectivity which is not only about dehumanization, it's also about how data has a value. So the data associated with a person's activity or the metadata associated with the data they produce has a value, and it has a value within a capitalist order, and it has a value within a neo-colonial order. It enables a number of things to happen. One, the subject is fixed as a data object. Two, the subject is equally, referring back to Cesar, desubjectivized. But also, I think quite importantly, the subject becomes part of an apparatus or becomes imbricated within an apparatus whereby the very activities that they undertake on a day-to-day basis becomes part of the functioning operative logic of that apparatus. So let's take that one step forward. When you look at the way in which artificial intelligence is deployed in the context of lethal autonomous weapons and unmanned aerial vehicles, you very quickly see that the activity of subjects basically propels forward that technology. Those technologies cannot function without the activity of others. So a surveillance system, an aerial surveillance system, needs a subject in order to function as an apparatus because that subject is the object of data. It's the source of data. The extraction of data from that subject enables artificial intelligence to train its neural networks in order to foresee or indeed preempt the future of that subject. So to refer back to your question, the subjectivities that are emerging in a neo-colonial digitized realm defined largely by artificial intelligence are fundamentally different and yet very similar in as much as they are still data points, they are still the object, they are still in many ways desubjectivized and they are part or a component of an apparatus that succinctly and consistently attempts to position them as objects of information rather than subjects of communication. That's a very interesting thought on uh, on apparatuses, and I was wondering, you talk about desubjectivation and becoming part of the apparatus. Mm-hmm. Does this imply a process of of creating a new subject as well, or is it just a desubjectivation without? a new subject emerging, if that makes sense, what I'm asking. I take my cue on this from Giorgio Agamben and his subject, 
in his area. I, I thought so, yeah. <laughs> specifically, you know, his, his, his thoughts on the apparatus. And there's a number of texts that he's written in and around this. And specifically, there's one text, What is an Apparatus? Mm-hmm. And th- that text itself, it's, it's remarkably short and focused. And he argues, again, quite succinctly, that all apparatuses produce subjects. Uh, and he takes that, of course, from Foucault, from Foucault's theory of the dispositif and Foucault's theory of discourse. When Foucault points out that the relationship between knowledge and power produces subjects effectively. Now, what's interesting for Foucault, and I think for Agamben too, is Foucault's never that concerned with the overt content of a statement. He's more concerned with what were the historical, social, economic, and indeed existential parameters that enabled that statement to be made in the first place, and equally enabled that statement to become a truth. And that truth in and of itself becomes the basis for the emergence of a subject. So when the discourse changes, when the parameters of a specific discourse changes, the subject changes. Now, I think that historical analysis is attractive to Giorgio Agamben because he immediately sees that an apparatus or a discourse or a dispositif, an apparatus can determine subjects, but that apparatus will also change over time and new subjects will emerge as a result of those changes, as a result of those evolutions. And again, for Foucault, those apparatuses, discourses, dispositifs produce normative behaviors. I think equally for Agamben, the apparatus is a process of producing subjects as normative subjects. Now, could we, for example, look at artificial intelligence as an apparatus that produces normative subjects, and that apparatus, as it changes over time, as we move, for example, from discriminative AI to generative AI, or GPT, generative pre-programmed transformers, Does the very notion of the subject change as a result of that? Now, we can extrapolate that a little bit further and ask the following question, returning back to generative pre-programmed transformers. Now, this is is an evolutionary change in the apparatus of AI. It's only in the last six to nine months that this whole discussion has become prevalent. Although, of course, if you've got any insight into AI, this discussion has been part of it for at least a decade. Because you have a situation now with GPT in particular, which is seen as a creative technology, a generative technology, there's been a lot of questions around creativity, specifically creativity. Uh, Is this the end of the creative subject, us as creative subjects? Will AI usurp our creative intention, our creative potential? Now, I don't think that's going to happen, but what it has done is that it's changed how we look at creativity. So it changes how we understand subjective forms of creativity. Now, for example, we could have more cooperative or collaborative forms of subjective of creativity as a direct result of the change in the apparatus or the evolution of AI. So again, this goes back to your point. I don't think it's a process of desubjectification per se. I think it's a question of how the apparatus of AI, <clears throat> as it evolves, evolves our understanding of what it is to be a subject. That's really interesting, Anthony. It gave me a lot to think about after we we stopped recording. But yeah, I guess it was how I read that text by Agamemnon to perceive towards the end his 
well, maybe, and also in his paranoia about technology of these apparatuses as these subjectifying without producing new subjects. But that's just a way of, mm. of understanding it. Probably. Actually, no, can I- yeah, sorry. Did you want to add anything? Sorry, just very briefly, very briefly interrupt you there. Um, because something else occurred to me there, and this is interesting, and well, hopefully interesting for your listeners. What Agamben takes specifically from Foucault is, is interesting in and of itself. Because Foucault uses the term apparatus, he uses it in an interview in 1977, and he uses it as a formation of a historical moment that has as its major function the response to an urgency. And he says the apparatus, therefore, has a dominant strategic function. Now, I was fascinated by this because what Foucault is actually describing there to a certain extent is the moment of historical emergency. How do apparatuses emerge in singular moments of historical emergency? Now, I think this interests Agamben because Agamben is always about the state of exception. He's about historical emergencies. He's about these moments in time where governmental systems, for example, do not work or they take on a different manifestation. And he's asking, in this instance, what apparatuses emerge out of historical moments of emergency or states of emergency, and how do they recreate subjects in that moment? Now, equally, we can ask a question. Are we undergoing presently in our contemporary moment, in the last decade or so, a moment of historical emergency, a state of emergency? And has AI in that moment emerged as an apparatus for managing subjects, for governing subjects, in a way that feeds right back to Foucault's notion of how the apparatus emerges as a modality of governance? Is AI a model or paradigm of governance, whereby it is not only producing subjects that answer to a specific normative form of subjectivity, but equally subjects who are fixed from within that historical moment and operative or answerable to that historical moment. So again, to go back to my earlier point, as the historical moment changes, the apparatus will change and the subject will change. But are we currently living under the conditions of algorithmic governance, for example? And could we extrapolate that to understand how algorithms are increasingly used as modes or models of surveillance, not just in the Middle East, but equally in uh, North America and in Europe. Well, listeners, that's something to think about, I think. (laughs) I'd like to maybe at this point, and this is really going to be the last more philosophical question. I've seen you reference Flusser a couple of times, and... Since we've been talking about apparatuses so much, I would like to know how this relates to the way that Flusser writes about apparatuses. So more as this mm-hmm. apparatuses that contain a program and use mm-hmm. us as their subjects to realize as many instances of what the program already contains. Mm. I mean, Willem Flusser is obviously very important here. And if you're looking for a linchpin between the technologies of vision employed by colonization, uh, aerial photography, and the autonomization 
of aerial photography in the early part of the 20th century and the emergence of photogrammetry in the mid-19th century, I think Flusser is that linchpin. He's the one that sums that up and starts to look at the emergence of a so-called technical image. Now, I'm interested in that relationship between technical images and Harun Faraki's notion of the operational image. And just very briefly on the technical image, my understanding, Neja, and you may, you may correct me on this, but my understanding of Flusser is that he's interested in the programmatic element of the apparatus, how the circuitry of an apparatus programs reality. And when he looks at the apparatus of photography, for example, the camera for him is an apparatus. Photography is an apparatus. It programs how we relate to reality. We often think of photography as capturing reality intentionally. But of course, the camera is a black box, to use Flusser's term. And internal to that black box is a program that enables us to see or not see certain realities. But the camera itself, the apparatus itself, is producing those realities through its own circuitry, but through its own programmatic nature. And I'm quite interested in how that actually relates to future discussions around the autonomous image and machine learning. Because I think what Flusser is outlining there is effectively a, a, an algorithmic apparatus to a certain extent, although he doesn't necessarily use those terms. But he is pointing to the apparatus as a black box that devolves human intentionality and indeed defers human engagement so that the black box is an apparatus, photography is an apparatus, takes on a programmatic event, is a programmatic event that precedes, predicates, and in many ways predicts what we can see or what we cannot see. Now, interestingly, this is picked up by people like Paul Virilio. Virilio talks about, um, well, he talks about a number of areas in the uh, his book, The Vision Machine. And one of those is the notion of instrumental virtual images, the way in which images operate instrumentally, but the way in which images also operate autonomously, images speaking to other images. And he talks about this electrotechnical operation, or this, what he refers to as electronic occipital cortex, the idea that somehow machines perceive and that ocular-centric moment of human perception is usurped by machinic vision. Now, again, I think this relates directly to Flusser because he's looking at the way in which the photography or the apparatus of photography usurps human intentionality and human vision. Now, of course, both of them, in certain ways and in different ways, relates to Faraki's notion of operational images. What Faraki means by operational images are images that are not for the purpose of symbolic representation, but images that are part of a process. They don't reflect upon a process, they are part of a process. This is images internalized within apparatuses that affect realities in the world, but are operational. They produce and they act upon certain realities. So again, I see Flusser, Virilio, Faraki, all to a certain extent, generating a discussion that we need to have in advance of understanding the apparatus of AI and how it exists as a black box system, a systemic black box, and how the realities that are being generated within AI are programming future realities, independent of us to a large extent. 
Mm, I'm not familiar with uh, Varelio, but I did uh, also consider this relation between the technical image and Faroki's operational image, as as you mention it a lot. Also, just this difference, I guess, between being unable inherently to decode the technical image, mm. but still in a different sense where I guess we are being, to simplify it, fooled by it representing or capturing something, whereas an operational image is, well, something we can't decode, but maybe something we're not even looking at. Well, this is really interesting. Well, relatively interesting, I guess. The nomenclature is not quite right because operational images are not images. Mm -hmm. They're not images for human consumption. They're images for machinic consumption. And you mentioned this notion of the difficulty of decoding the technical image. And again, I think this is core to Flusser. And this is an interesting connection point between, again, Flusser and the algorithmic apparatus in as much as the difficulty of decoding technical images is in part down to the degree to which they resist critique. Now, you could argue that that's exactly what's happening with the algorithmic black box. The internalized hidden layers of a neural network are not just hidden and opaque, but they're resistant to critique. Now, this is a huge area in AI, specifically around transparency and the ethics of AI, because even those individuals, programmers who are programmers who are generating <laughs> these neural networks, generating these algorithms that power these neural networks, are not quite sure of what's happening internal to that system. So again, there's a resistance to critique with algorithmic apparatuses that is in part replicated in Flusser's highlighting of the problem of decoding the technical image. And again, I think with Faraki, the operational image, again, there's a certain resistance to critique. But I don't think we should be fatalistic about this because, of course, the impact of operational images in the real world, so-called real world, can be measured. Equally, the impact of algorithms in the so-called real world can be measured. And we can backfill or backpropagate and start thinking about, well, what had to happen internal to that black box for this to happen? And there's been so much research around uh, the way in which algorithmic rationalizations have not only generated racial bias, but gender bias and uh, discriminated against certain communities. And that research is absolutely necessary because it is beginning that process of decoding algorithmic apparatuses in a way that Flusser also highlighted when he points to the difficulty of decoding technical images. But of course, his work is all about that process of decoding too. Since we only have five, ten minutes left, I would like to conclude on that and maybe shift towards your research on fully autonomous lethal weapons and on concrete examples of neocolonial violence mm. that these systems that maybe we were talking about, their theoretical background throughout this podcast perpetuated. Mm. Well, 
Where to begin? <laughs> Sorry, I feel bad actually that I mentioned this almost as an afterthought because this is actually what's what's the most important here. Well, yes, but I mean the discussion we're having about is how we got to this point. Um, yeah. yeah. As far as I'm concerned, Major, Western technologies of vision have largely used the Middle East, and I focus specifically on the Middle East. I focus specifically on Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, given that they've both been used recently as testing grounds for precisely the technologies we're talking about. So 2001, the invasion of Afghanistan, uh, you have a number of infamous statements made in and around that time, specifically George Bush's statement of 2000, 2002, where he says, if we wait for threats to materialize, we will have waited too long. That's an extraordinary thing to say uh, in as much as he is saying that we need to preempt threat by whatever means necessary. Now, part of the military thinking around preemption, preemption is a military strategy, but what AI offers in 2001 and 2003 during the invasion of Iraq is a means to predict or better predict, and I put that in inverted commas because it doesn't necessarily better predict but it does forecast certain areas of threat and certain areas of potential risk. So it enables the military to base a whole strategy of preemptive violence on the notion of algorithmic prediction. Let's break that down a little bit more. 2003, and there's a wonderful book by Arthur Holland Michel called Eyes in the Sky, and he goes into quite considerable detail around this. Invasion of Iraq, March 2003, the initial invasion did not get off to a good start. And in fact, there was quite a lot of conflict within the US military about how to proceed at that time, because you had uh, improvised explosive devices, IEDs, going off at a pretty regular basis. Uh, these were very difficult to detect and very difficult to predict. In order to predict them, in order to actually uh, focus on where these IEDs were, you would need hyper-surveillance or a form of hyper-surveillance that was 24-7-365. Now, at that time, 2003, the military started to develop a project called Argus. And Argus was an algorithmically powered project that developed systems of wide area aerial um, mobility and wide area surveillance. Now, effectively, these systems sought to predict future threats before they occurred. Now, that entire logic has become imbricated within the development of artificial intelligence in kinetic and non-kinetic forms of warfare since. And you see it being played out again and again and again in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in northern Pakistan, where algorithmically rationalized specters, phantasms of risk and threat have been used as the excuse for drone strikes. So an algorithmically rationalized form of a pattern of life analysis, for example, would be utilized to predicate the decision to strike or kill an individual. Now, this happens in 2001, in August 2001, when Zamari Ahmadi in Kabul and nine members of his family are killed in a drone strike a hellfire uh, drone strike. A pattern of life analysis had been gathered. Part of that pattern of life analysis would have been 
algorithmically rationalized to suggest that he presented a potential threat. It turns out that Zamari Ahmadi did not present a threat, was not a member of ISIS or an ISIS-affiliated organization, but was in fact an aid worker. Now, what strikes me as particularly germane, particularly um, critical about these instances is the extent to which the predictive logic of AI, let us not forget AI is about prediction, is being increasingly utilized within military organizations to quantify and qualify preemptive strikes. Now, of course, we have this whole debate about autonomous, semi-autonomous, and fully autonomous, lethal autonomous weapons. Now, arguably, as soon as you put AI in the decision-making process, you have devolved a degree of responsibility to a machine, which gives you the alibi of not being necessarily responsible for the outcome of that drone strike. So there's quite a number of issues here about the way in which AI offers an alibi of sorts, specifically in the military, for preemptive strikes that turn out to be erroneous. And again, I use that term advisedly, because obviously an error in a drone strike equals fatality and consistently equals fatality across, for example, Afghanistan and Iraq. For anyone listening, you can find out more about Zamari Ahmadi in the New York Times investigation we will link in the notes, as well as further reading of Anthony's thought on these subjects that we discussed. I want to thank you again so much, Anthony. I learned a lot, like every time listening to you, and I'm sure it was interesting for people listening to the podcast as well it's been an absolute pleasure neja and uh yes i look forward to talking to you again and uh please send my regards to everyone in ljubljana thank you anthony bye 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 thanks so much for listening everyone Here we end SCALE, the first series of the New Tactics and Practice podcast channel, which complements the Axioma Discursive program of the same name, focusing on investigative art, society, and new technologies. If you like what we did, we'd appreciate it if you subscribed and stay tuned, because we will be back on this channel with exciting new content soon. But in the meantime, you're welcome to visit axioma.org, where you'll find a wealth of free content and consider supporting us on Patreon or by any other means. And for a while, that's all from me. It was a pleasure making this mini-series. I'd like to personally thank all of the guests, all of the collaborators, and Yanis and Marcela, of course, for bringing us all together in this podcast space. And thank you so much to everyone listening. I hope it was interesting for you. That's all for now. Greetings from Ljubljana and, as always, na svidanje. Tactics and Practice Podcast.